What should we talk about today? We could talk about what it means to take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. We could also talk about the significance of your precepts. While we're at it, we could talk, talk about the ten precepts rather than five, and Uposatate and uh, dedicated lay practitioners. And, uh, yes. Sounds good. All right, well, let's, let's talk about that then. So, when we go for refuge to the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, although this superficially um, resembles in many ways the sort of uh, worship activities of uh, Western religious traditions and uh, theistic religious traditions in general. But it actually is very, very different from that. In that, first of all, the Buddha who we take refuge in is not uh, a supernatural being or a god. And we're not taking refuge in the sense that we're praying to someone else to come and solve our problems because the Buddha himself said he can't do that. The Buddha was an ordinary human being who became awakened. And so when we go for refuge to the Buddha, uh, we're going to refuge to the fact of his enlightenment and that it was attained by his own efforts and not by virtue of some divine grace or some other power that uh, deigned to grant him this gift, but rather it was something that he attained through his own efforts as a human being with the same uh, capabilities that we have. And so, therefore, to take refuge in the Buddha is to take refuge in that enlightenment of the Buddha and in the fact that we can awaken in the same way. And to take refuge, of course, implies that we already have woken up at least to the fact that there is something that we need to take refuge from, which is the, uh, the endless sources of dissatisfaction, unhappiness, and suffering that are present in life. And we've come to recognize that uh, the solution to that is not to be found by striving harder in the world to achieve worldly goals. And so we're taking refuge from this apparently desperate situation that we realize we're in, which is extremely dissatisfying existentially that we struggle and strive, you know, uh, life is hard and then you die. And uh, of course you uh, can work for the future of society and your children so that they too can have a hard life and then die. <laughs> 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 
uh, you sort of, in, in, until you got to the point where you realize it, you know, this isn't really working, that you hope that there's something better, and that's at that point when you realize this isn't really working, that you're seeking refuge. Because the other, only other alternative is is uh, uh, either depression and suicide, or else just a, a stoic acceptance and trying to make the best of a really rotten situation. So, we, that's why we take refuge. Is there something better? And the something better is the, awaken, the awakening, the Buddhahood, the, the Bodhi. That's, so, that's what it means to take refuge in, in the Buddha, is to take refuge in the idea, the hope, the belief that, the, that, this is, that there, there really is this alternative to... Uh, a life of, of pain and suffering, and uh, its uh, existential dissatisfactoriness. So, even to take refuge in the Buddha, we have to have already grasped something of the first of the four truths, the, the truth of what's usually called the truth of dissatisfactoriness, and the hope that there is something better. Then we go for refuge to the Dharma, and of course I think that's kind of obvious. If there is, if this awakening is possible, then uh, we are very fortunate that we have this Dharma that was taught by the Buddha and has been preserved and passed along and come down to us, so that we have some guidance. The, the Buddha himself, Siddhartha Gautama, had to find this way on his own, and uh, of course that that he succeeded set him apart as a very unique individual. We have the benefit of having the Dharma that he taught and that is passed on to us to help us in achieving that. And so, taking refuge, uh, we take refuge not only in the fact of the Buddha's enlightenment, but also that we have this method to follow to help us achieve that for ourselves. The third thing that we take refuge in is the Sangha. And the Sangha refers, the Sangha has several different meanings. First of all, there is that Sangha, or community, actually it's interesting, the word Sangha comes from uh, uh, it has the same roots in uh, uh, Sanskrit as, as uh, singing and song and so forth, chanting. And of course, the Sangha was those group of people who uh, gathered together to uh, chant uh, the, the, because the, uh, the Dharma, the teachings were not written, they were memorized and they were chanted. So. The Sangha is the group of those, the community of those who get together to chant. But one meaning of Sangha is that community of all of those people who have succeeded in, uh, in achieving their own awaken by fo- awakening by following the, uh, the, the path of the Dharma. And so that would be called the Aryan Sangha. And so that is all, all of those people, uh, hundreds of thousands of who knows how many people, 
uh, over all of the centuries who have followed this dharma and have succeeded in becoming awakened. And uh, so we most definitely take refuge in that sangha. Um, for the same reasons that we take refuge in the, the uh, in the Buddha, it is that sangha uh, that is our assurance that this uh, that this Dharma is genuine, that it really works, that there really is an awakening, that the Buddha wasn't just another charismatic sales guy who's made his ego feel good to have lots of guys following him around and calling him, you know, oh blessed one. Because that'd be quite possible, right? We see it all over the place nowadays. So, you know. so we go for refuge in the Sangha, the Aryan Sangha, as uh, as our assurance that in, indeed this does work. Uh, another sense of Sangha is the um, the community of ordained monks and nuns. So, uh, and it is due to this community of ordained monks and nuns that we do have the Dharma available to us today because they passed it along. First, uh, by memorization, by uh, the transmission of memorized teachings, and then later it was written down. And for many centuries, when they were written, uh, they didn't have paper and printing. And so, actually, they would copy them onto palmyra leaves with a pointed stylus, after which they would rub soot into the scratches so that they had a readable document. <laughs> so, a lot of labor involved in preserving those teachings. And then, of course, eventually uh, they were available in printed form, but there's also been simultaneously the oral transmission and the oral tradition and all of that time. So that's another meaning of Sangha. Uh, the third meaning of Sangha is this, what's called the Sangha at large, and that would be everybody who is, is following and practicing this Dharma in, in the world, whether they're enlightened or not, or whether they're ordained as a monk or not. Or not. So that's one. one we, we actually take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha three times. So that's what the first refuge is about. Any questions about that? Okay. Important thing to be able to explain to other people. So it's important to be able to understand it yourself. And also to you know uh, make sure that you're not in that place of, oh well, I, you know, all of this Dharma and this meditation practice is really interesting to me. But I see they do this uh, religious mumbo jumbo of you know praying to the Buddha, and I'll politely uh, sit through that, but I'm not going to be a part of it. <laughs> so it's a lot of people. That's you know that it hasn't been explained to them, and they don't understand. And so that would be their kind of attitude to it. Well, I came for the meditation class, you know, and I'll I'll just be polite for this other stuff. But it really uh, to just understand the meaning of I go for refuge the Buddha, is really to have a much more clear motivation and understanding of what all of this is about. 
And the goal is very definitely, uh, needs to be, should be, to achieve your own awakening. And uh, it is an absolutely essential first step on the path is to realize that that's necessary and realize why it's necessary to have some some grasp of, of recognition that that life as people ordinary live it is not uh, is not satisfying and acceptable to you and there was I think there was there was uh, an article about uh, uh, Joan Halifax Roshi you all know who she is at the Upaya Zen Center in Santa Fe, was uh, at one time the wife of Stanislav Grof, uh, a psychiatrist, who, and together they wrote uh, some wonderful books on, on uh, death and dying, and she still teaches uh, death and dying, but she became a Zen monk and eventually, or Zen nun, I should say, and eventually a Roshi. And there was an article about here, I think Annie may have given it to us. Thank you. Yeah. And the thing I liked, one of the things I liked best about that article was an anecdote that she was giving this talk to this big group of people. And at some point she, you know, said, and so we live our itty-bitty lives in our itty-bitty houses with our itty-bitty friends and our itty-bitty this and our itty-bitty that. And then she shouted at the top of her voice, I won't have it! (laughs) And she repeated it a couple more times. And then she said, come on, join me. I won't have it. You know, I I, I think, I I wish I remembered better the whole sequence. I think it ended up with, with, uh, we we die our itty-bitty meaningless deaths, too. Yeah, about being miserable or something. Yeah, right. But this is, this is about that. This is this is about realizing to to take refuge is to express the realization that you have that you are not willing to settle for that anymore, okay. and then to seriously pursue the Dharma means to 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 really commit yourself to that to realize that unless you get busy and get serious, that you, that's exactly what is going to happen to you. Yes. I, I usually find the importance of something in its absence. Mm-hmm. And as I awaken, I look back and I realize how unhappy I was. Mm-hmm. Yes. That's right. Because... There's a sort of narcotic effect that is built into us of, of uh, resigning ourselves to the unhappiness that makes up our lives. And it's not until, you know, when you have one of those days where you just, uh, life is so beautiful, the world is so fantastic, that, you know, the contrast between that and all of those other days that uh, the best thing that happened is that you 
got your job done on time and didn't get chewed out for being late. <laughs> or you got up in the morning to make a pot of coffee and at least you weren't out of coffee this morning. So that, that, was, a, that was a good day. So, um, so yeah, it's the, it, and, and that's why you need to keep reminding yourself too. Because when you have, when things are going well, uh, sometimes it's hard to remember the nature of things. So it's easy when it, when things fall apart, when everything is really, really terrible. You know, when your girlfriend's left you and your truck broke down and your dog <laughs> died all on the same day. You know, then, <laughs> then you know there's something wrong. It's all those other days that that are, are the ones that that keep you deluded. But we take refuge three times, and uh, there are different ways that you might find the uh, refuges described, but the way that I prefer is where it's interpreted in the past the first time, which is what I just described to you, the historical Buddha, the Dharma that's been transmitted to us, and the history of the Aryan Sangha who have used this Dharma effectively. But then the second time you take refuge, you're taking refuge in the future. So when you go for refuge to the Buddha, you are going for refuge to your own future Buddhahood, to your own future enlightenment. And uh, Dharma means We've used it in the first sense as being teaching, but a teaching, uh, this teaching is described as being uh, at its core an ultimate truth, a truth that exists whether there's a Buddha to discover it or not, and the Buddha only discovers this truth and is transmitted to us. So when we go for refuge to the Dharma in the sense of the future, we are going uh, for refuge to the Dharma in the sense of that ultimate truth that we will come to, to fully understand. So we're taking refuge in our own future Buddhahood and our own future uh, understanding, direct experience of that ultimate truth. And when we go for refuge to the Sangha, we are going uh, for refuge to our own future membership and that Aryan Sangha, uh, Arya means noble, and that noble Sangha of those who have uh, achieved the victorious ones, the ones who have uh, achieved the goal of the path. And then the third time we go for refuge, quite appropriately enough, is in the present. We go for refuge to the Buddha, meaning that we recognize that 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 Buddha nature is already exists within us. It's not something outside of us to be attained, but it's more like the uh, the diamond to be uncovered by removing all of the uh, defilements and obscurations. That it is like the gold in a piece of ore that uh, awaits 
purification, that we have the Buddha nature already within us. So we go for refuge to our own inner wisdom that we only need to remove the defilements and obscurations to have it come forth and to guide us. And of course, this is the only way we would ever find ourselves on such a path or be able to continue on such a path is that at some level that wisdom is already operating within us, has already become, has already come to the surface enough to make us aware of the need to, to change. It made us aware that the, the, the drugs and the booze and the sex and the money and the cars and the jewelry and everything else and the friends and the fame, that these things aren't, aren't going to make it for us. So something's already made us aware of that, something's already guided us, something's already brought us this far. And so we go for refuge to that Buddha nature that already exists within it. And we go for refuge to the Dharma in the sense, in addition to meaning, meaning teaching, and in addition to meaning the ultimate truth that that teaching is an expression of, Dharma also is used to refer to the practice that we do. The, the study, the mindfulness, the reflection, the meditation. And so in the present tense, we're going for refuge to our own practice, that in the course of our lives, not yet fully awakened, that uh, whatever we're confronted with, we have this refuge, we have our practice. When, when things get really difficult, we can practice mindfulness, we can uh, apply the teachings of the Dharma, we can sit down and meditate, uh, we can uh, keep the precepts, we can practice the, the perfections, we can do all of these things. These are the tools we have to help us today and tomorrow and the next day. So we go for refuge in the Dharma because... Now also it means, and this is a recurrent theme in what I'm saying, so I will verbally highlight it here. It also means truly understanding these teachings, not remembering them and mouthing them, but truly understanding what these Four Noble Truths are telling us, and truly understanding what the, uh, the ideas of impermanence, selflessness, and uh, suffering as being the true nature of, uh, or as being the, the characteristics of our ordinary experience, and so forth. And not that sounds nice and glossing it over, but really understanding it. So taking refuge in the Dharma means really understanding that Dharma, taking the time to study it, taking the time to ask questions, not accepting. It really means not accepting a word of it until you're certain that you understand it and it makes sense to you and you can see how to use it and apply it. Which is actually what I'm doing with talking to you about the three refuges, because I don't want you to take the three refuges as some little ritual thing that you go along with or mouth without understanding the meaning of it. And then finally, you go for refuge to the Sangha. And the Sangha, in a sense, means 
all of those other people, the Sangha at large in the world, all of those other people who are also practicing this Dharma, who are your Kalyanamitas, your spiritual friends, who, by keeping company with them, by being inspired by them, by discussing the Dharma with them, by meditating together with them, they are all the teachers who, by attending their talks and attending their retreats or listening to their recordings or their videotapes or reading their books, are helping you to understand and apply this Dharma in your own life. So the final refuge in the Sangha is in the, in the Sangha at large in the world and the way that it is supporting you in your path. And so, would you agree that if you can even keep that somewhat in your mind when you say, Budong Saranam Gachame, or I go for refuge to the Buddha, the Dhamma, etc. If you can keep those ideas in your mind when you do it, then this, isn't, this no longer is a meaningless ritual. It's actually a powerful practice of reminding you why you're doing this, what it's all about. And what, and also what you need to do. Mm-hmm. Any questions about that? Comments? Yeah. I'm just thinking. <clears throat> the way I've been thinking about it, and it's based off of the way you've taught it before, on um, with the refuges. Um, but I don't think it's exactly the same way that you're describing it. Mm-hmm. But it seems to work well for me, and I don't know. It's, I don't think there's any mm-hmm. harm in it, but. When I think of the Buddha, going to refuge for the, in the Buddha, I think of it the same way you were saying that the, the going to refuge in, in the, to the potential for enlightenment, that he, the human potential for enlightenment. And the Dharma, I think the same way too, that it's, it's about um, taking refuge in direction. Um, not so much the ideas, but the, the fact that I can get direction towards that kind of enlightenment. And then, but then with the Sangha, I usually think more literally other other practitioners that aren't necessarily arnhats or aren't necessarily enlightened beings in the past because mm-hmm. um, that seems more useful to me the the kind of like uh in other groups i'm part of we say we're all crazy but not on the same day so mm-hmm. that's how we help each other that there's like everybody's got this kind of wisdom at any given moment so especially in a in a in a, in a sangha and so that's kind of why I'm taking refuge is in the support of the people in the community, the Buddhist community, and their kind of um, Buddhist Buddha potential. Are so, you saying that's that's something different than what I, I just said? I don't know, because the way you describe it, and maybe I'm not, um, maybe you're describing it in more ways, but the way I hear it is that traditionally, especially in the first refuge, in the past, you're, you're more taking refuge in enlightened beings, um, historic beings, individuals that have achieved enlightenment. But maybe that's not exactly, maybe I'm being too literal. Um, Actually, uh, this this, is good, let's just clarify this. Um, I presented the three different meanings of Sangha when I was discussing the first refuge. And uh, in essence, you're taking refuge in all three of them. in the first case, but in the first case, especially, um, especially in terms of the past, you're you're taking refuge in 
both those who have succeeded in becoming enlightened, the Aryan Sangha, mm-hmm. uh, and also those to whom you owe the debt of gratitude that this Dharma is available to you today, which would be the, the ordained Sangha. Right? Okay. Uh, then the second time you go for refuge in the future, once again it's with reference to the Aryan Sangha, but that is in terms of your own future mm-hmm. uh, membership in that Sangha. But then the third time, in the present, it's exactly what you were saying. Mm-hmm. You're taking refuge in the, uh, uh, in the Sangha at large, which is all of the people who are practicing this Buddha Dhamma in one form or another. And actually, I very much like the part that you said, that we're all crazy, but not on the same day. <laughs> because that's, that's, uh, that's, a, that's a really important thing. We're, we're uh, all crazy, but not on the same day. The Buddha once uh, uh, was approached by somebody and said, so uh, good companions, and by that he meant exactly what you do, the, the uh, uh, kalyanamita, spiritual friends, those who are also practicing the path. He, he asked the Buddha, he said, so uh, uh, good companions, with this larger meaning of good companions, he said, good companions, uh, venerable sir, uh, they are also part of the path, are they not? And he answered back, he said, he said, good companions are the whole of the path. So there is that recognition that, that we absolutely need the, this mutual support and to, uh, to, to deny that or to ignore that fact is a huge mistake. Because on our own we're very prone to, to delusion. We're at the, at the mercy of all of our own neuroses, and uh, we're not too good at telling which days we're crazy and which days we're not. <laughs> so it's good to have other people around us to help us know. So, so yeah, but what you're saying is really good. And so go ahead. Is there more to say about... Uh, um, no, I don't think so. That was I was just trying to clarify it in my own mind. Yeah. I haven't thought about it as much when I... Um, I talked to you about it a while ago, and then I was I was being more kind of mm-hmm. conscientious when I was just I just do it right before my meditation. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was trying to clarify in my own mind what it meant. So right. it doesn't because I go back and forth w- between it feeling like empty ritual and mm-hmm. um, and not having a lot of significance for me, and and then the mm-hmm. other the other end where I'm really I'm trying to kind of bring to mind everything mm-hmm. that you've talked about yeah. because I think it is it makes sense to have that at the forefront of the mind, mm-hmm. um, yeah. whenever you're in. I spent about, what would you say, maybe half an hour describing this. Mm-hmm. You could mm-hmm. verbally recall the basic points of this to yourself every time you do it, mm-hmm. and it might take you, I don't know, it was five minutes, ten minutes, maybe if you did it regularly, more or less. You don't have to specifically verbally recall all of this every time. That's not important. The important thing is if you ever find yourself doing this where it's just a ritual, wake up. Mm-hmm. Think about what it really means. Do not settle for that. Do not settle for, you know, be on guard against that. 
make it your goal that I'm never going to do any part of this just as a rote activity. Mm. That I'm going to find the meaning and I won't move on to the next stage. I, it, you know, I'm better off to sit here and remind myself and recollect what this is in a way that has meaning and import to me as I am right now in this moment than to go ahead and start my meditation practice. Because mm-hmm. this is an important thing to do first. So I'd, I'd, be, I'd go so far as to say that it's good that you do it every time before you meditate. But make sure you've re- at least touched into the place where it's not re- repetition, yeah. it has real meaning. And, and then continue from that point. Mm-hmm. So it's, that's very good. Yeah. Keep it up. Carry forth with that. Any other questions or comments? Well, the other part of this is the precepts. The first five precepts that we did, together with the refuges in those first five precepts, uh, this is what makes one formally a Buddhist. Uh, it's sort of the entry, you're an entry-level Buddhist if you undertake to keep these five precepts and if you have some understanding of the refuges and you see them as, uh, you're, you're, you're truly a Buddhist if you can see these refuges as being uh, what, you, what you need and if you see that keeping these precepts is an essential part of achieving that. So the first precept is that of uh, not killing. So, you know, if, if you work for the mafia and you're a hitman, you've got to change and change professions. Afraid there's just no. <laughs> <laughs> or I can really stress your preference. <laughs> but, you know, you, you undertake the precept and then. You explore what it means, and nobody is telling you this is what it means that you can never step on an ant for the rest of your life, or you've violated this precept, and you should go and get a whip and flagellate yourself 108 times. And nobody's saying that, and nobody's saying that you should never eat a bite of meat anymore because some animal was killed so that you could do that. You should never eat a piece of tofu because of all of the insects and moles and mice and everything else that were killed to plant that field of soy. Because that's ridiculous. But what it means is that you think about your actions and whatever any action is causing injury, death, destruction to other sentient beings, you be aware of it. You don't do it mindlessly blindly. You be aware of it. You pay attention to it and then you allow that mindfulness and that understanding to make the changes in your mind stream that need to be made. So you in depth, yes? For for more years than I can recount, um, when I see a dead animal, on the road or whatever, I apologize. Is that part of that? It, it, it certainly can be, yes. For you, 
I presume you apologize because you're recognizing that the presence of human beings, especially in the numbers that we are and with the technology we have, is responsible for massive destruction of huge numbers of beings. Even though dead animal inside the road, there was no deliberate intent to kill it most of the time. It's, but, uh, it's an apology to its spirit. Yeah, right. But, and so that's a good thing. That's, but the point is that it's up to each person to come to that place themselves. It's not the case that, that uh, well, everybody should feel this way and everybody should do that. It's to discover for yourself. These precepts are tools. They're tools to purify yourself. And the longer you use them, the more likely you're come, you are to come to that kind of place. Second precept is not to, not to take what's not freely given. And, of course, this always happens uh, in a group of people where we're discussing these things. There's always at least one person that says, yeah, but, you know, what if this and this? Then wouldn't it be, you know, right? There, and that's, and that's, it's not like it's some literal thing that's spelled out and it's exactly, you know, there are gray areas. And the, those, it's the gray areas that are important. They're the ones that you need to figure out for yourself. And not only that, as you work, as you do the work of doing that, the gray area, the, the gray zone moves. The gray zone changes. So, you know, it starts out, well, you don't engage in outright stealing. But then eventually you you become more of a sharing person. It's not just outright stealing. There's all of those other ways that are you are perhaps taking more than your share. And then it goes beyond that to, you know, uh, you, you might even come to the point where you feel like to keep that, pres- that precept, uh, you need to go so far as to safeguard the possessions of those around you. Or it may turn into an expression of generosity that not only taking, not taking what is not freely given, uh, it uh, may be to, to give that which you would otherwise like to hold on to yourself. And there, is, there are stories you'll hear about, you know, People will be robbed, and they say, "Well, I realized that I could have been angry and upset about being robbed, but then I decided that it would actually be much better for me to just, in my own mind, give the thief those things, make a gift of them." <laughs> and uh, just, just in terms of your subjective experience during the hours and days after you have been robbed. Which would be preferable? I, it's not going to change the net result at all, is it? But whatever's been stolen is gone, and most of the time, in case of most kinds of thievery that take place in the world, the thief will never be known, the goods will never be recovered. But even if they are, you'll have gone through that feeling of being invaded, assaulted, robbed, uh, the loss of something that you're attached to, everything else. You go through all kinds of mental trauma. Wouldn't it be nice if you could get yourself to the point where you, instead of uh, feeling miserable because of your loss, 
in your mind, you give it away, and then you're free of it. And, and you can go on with your life without any further suffering. So that's, that's how that second precept could eventually evolve. But at least you start off by vowing to give up bank robbery, you know, and then see where else it'll take you. <laughs> you want to turn some cooling on? Or? Oh. Yeah, I was just wondering about the sound of the bottle. Oh. Do what you need, whatever you think. So I'd have to give the lizard some water, but it's okay. Here you go. Ah, yes. Yes, this is a Dharma lizard. He lives in here. He likes to meditate on Nancy's cushion. Oh, cool. Kamesu Michichara is sexual misconduct that you agree to refrain from. And of course, it means obvious things like giving up rape, child molestation, things like that. But uh, it actually, when you go into it, it begins to involve all of the... uh, uh, you, You can go from actual acts of sexual coercion to unwholesome ways that you might manipulate other people through your or their sexuality. And of course that can just keep on evolving to the ways the, the ways that our interactions with uh, other people of every kind, the kinds of effects they have. So that uh, sexual behavior is one extremely powerful kind of interaction that we have with other people that can be either good or bad. But uh, if you think about it, it, that's only one of the kinds of interactions that we have with other people that can be either good or bad. And so you, you can start off with the obvious things, adultery, rape, uh, uh, other things like this, and sexual misconduct, can, uh, refraining from sexual misconduct can evolve into being mindful of the ways, of, of all of the many ways that we impact other beings, you know, that uh, how someone else sees you and their needs and how you might either uh, through ignorance or disrespect abuse that relationship or through for selfish gain or uh, in order to express your momentary feelings of anger and annoyance. So you see what I'm saying? Um, Musavada, that's uh, wrong speech. And that includes lying. And once again, talk about that in a group when you always get people say, yeah, but what about, you know, looking for all the white lies, you know, and things like that. Um, it also means refraining from uh, harsh speech divisive speech, and uh, idle speech and gossip. And so uh, there's there's a whole lot about our behavior that can be discovered by examining our own speech and the motives for it and the impacts that it has on other people. And learning to 
uh, learning to use speech in a wholesome way, uh, tremendous improvement in your life will result. Yes? You have to know yourself and what your own intention is. And That's right. That Absolutely. Make it clear. That's right. You have to know yourself and your own intention. So doesn't that make it what? What was the last thing you said? Clear. Clear? Clear. Yeah. That's 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 uh, that's the only way. You you know all of these things that we do that are unwholesome come from unwholesome intentions and uh, but most of the time we are so quick to rationalize them we don't see the unwholesome intentions that lie behind, you know. And sometimes we harm out of good intention. Sometimes we harm out of good intentions, but often are, in that case, it can be through ignorance or insensitivity. But very often, too, you know, uh, I mean, this, this is so common that it's ridiculous, is the person who feels that they need to give other people good advice. But you look at the good advice they're giving, and it's really, it's all about telling the other person how smart they are. <laughs> We're giving the advice you need. That's, yeah. Sometimes it's giving the other person the advice you need yourself, yeah. uh, which is a really good way of, you know, I mean, the, the mental logic behind that is if I can give the advice, then I don't need it, and it's a way of avoiding. Giving people the advice that you need is a way of <laughs> avoiding taking that advice yourself. It's amazing to see it in action in yourself and in other people. But if you look for it, you'll see it goes on all the time. You're, of course, we're very sensitive to the problems in others that are reflections of our own problems. But we can actually use that as a way to keep from looking at our own problems. But if you practice uh, mindfulness of speech, you'll turn that on its head, and you'll have to look at why you're saying that, and you'll begin to discover, well, yeah, the real reason is that uh, it's advising others as a way of avoiding, you know, looking at the things that we need to look at in ourselves and taking our own advice. But also, especially often, advice giving is, is look how smart I am, look how clever I am, look how much I know. Uh, of course, and the other half of that is look how dumb you are. I'm so wise, and you, you are the foolish person that needs my advice. So you have to really watch out for that. Yeah. Uh, your good intentions, you look behind your good intentions, and you find that, that there's, there may really be some good intention, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's purely good intention. It's, like, well, it's the only dynamic. Yeah. Right. And the, the fifth of these common precepts, is the precept to uh, refrain from uh, from things that dull the mind. Uh, the uh, The basic form of the precept is to avoid substances that dull the mind. But nowadays, we're so sophisticated in dulling the mind that we have a lot of activities that dull the mind as well. So, you know, if, uh, if you belong to a social group that, that uh, uh, doesn't want to use uh, marijuana and, and uh, heroin and alcohol to dull the mind, you can use TVs and computers to dull the mind and achieve more or less the same effect.
So it's all about not dulling the mind, because a mind that's dull, you can't really keep the other precepts with a mind that's dull. And all these precepts, when you look at them, what they're all about, bottom line, if you want to sum up all five precepts, refrain from those activities that cause harm to others or to yourself. That's, or just very simply, ahimsa. Refrain from activities, activity, activities of body, speech, and mind that are a cause of harm to anyone. The next set of five precepts are the precepts of a dedicated lay practitioner. The first five are the standard precepts that anybody who's a Buddhist will have agreed to try to keep in their lives. And the second five is for the person who is going to go a step further. Now, of course, you could take ordination and then you'd have to follow the 200-some-odd rules of the Winaya, the Code of Discipline, uh, which include uh, 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 celibacy and not owning anything and all kinds of things like that. Let's work on the first ten. <laughs> but I think that I just to just to back step a little bit here. Uh, I feel, and Chins and Young feels as well. We're both very much in agreement with this. That the Dharma we've got just ain't good enough. We need something a whole lot better. And the fact that for 2,500 years, as it's gradually become weaker and less effective, it has been in the sole domain of the uh, uh, ordained Sangha, also just is not going to cut it anymore. We need a much better, more effective Dharma than presently exists. Now, remember, if for those of you that were at Shenzhen's talk, he talked about his happy thought. Yes. That's what his happy thought is about. You know, and I look back and I even see in the time of the Buddha, the Buddha's teaching, boy, it was so much more effective. Thousands of people became fully enlightened and it was, you know, it was sort of like swine flu the way it spread. <laughs> and nowadays, we've reached the point where a lot of people, seriously, a lot of Buddhists believe it's impossible that in these degenerate times that people can't become awakened anymore, which is not true. But... Uh, but we need a dharma that we, we need. We need thousands, hundreds of thousands of people to become awakened. So we need a better dharma, and we need most especially the only way we're going to get that better dharma is to uh, take the dharma gratefully with thanks and appreciation and much bowing from the ordained sangha and say thank you very much. Now we're going to run with it has to be in the hands of lay people, lay people that are serious about it. So a dedicated lay practitioner, then, of course, you'll see those vows. The first has to do with livelihood. And, of course, if you're not being supported by uh, the pious laity, then livelihood is an important issue. And it is problematic. Anyone who dedicates themselves seriously to Dharma practice has to take a really serious look at the source of their livelihood and how they go about conducting themselves. And they may have to make changes. They may have to modify how they conduct themselves but still remain in the same profession. But in some cases they may have to realize that, that the profession doesn't work. 
Uh, it, first of all, it may work, may not work in the sense that it is a cause of harm to other beings, and there's many professions that are exactly that. But there is also, and, and so in that regard, if you have a livelihood that is a cause of harm to other beings, then you can't keep the other precepts. But also, if your livelihood impacts you in a certain way, you can't keep the next four that follow after that. And a lot of livelihoods may not cause direct harm to other beings, but they put the person in a position where they do not have the, the time or the energy, the amount of stress they have, everything else, to keep the next four precepts. And the next four precepts have to do, the next two after that, have to do with your interactions, your relationships with other people. And to keep those precepts means that you have to be mindful in the most difficult situation to be mindful in, which is in your interactions with other people. It's really easy to be mindful when you're driving a car, when you're by yourself, when you're, you know, it gets, as soon as you start talking to somebody else, mindfulness becomes much more difficult. And as soon as that interaction begins to have emotional content to it, unless you're pretty skilled, mindfulness is long gone. So to keep these next two precepts, this takes a lot of commitment. It means that every time you start to interact with somebody, you know, open-hearted, generous, loving kindness, compassion, you know, are they there or not? And, of course, in the beginning, you'll, your mind will say, okay, not relevant in this situation. <laughs> there, I was mindful. I noticed that it didn't, you know, it was not relevant, so we'll keep on going. But if, if you keep doing it, you'll start to discover more and more often that, well, yeah, it really is relevant <laughs> in, in, in just about every interaction. Yeah? I was just going to say, one of the things that I've been thinking about around that, thinking about what you're talking about, is, is it's <clears throat> to this, there's there's at least a short-term benefit and in certain areas of life, a long-term benefit to not acting that way, mm -hmm. to not coming in with mindfulness and, and coming in with a sense of um, assertiveness mm -hmm. and manipulation and kind of um, drive to dominate almost, mm -hmm. like in, in academia, you know, and trying to prove yourself. I, I find that a lot of times I'm intentionally managing my... Um, my, my image mm -hmm. and, and trying to present uh, a more competent, almost disingenuous mm -hmm. kind of self. Yes. And, and it does serve me. I don't mm -hmm. do it, I mean, I make it sound worse than it is, but because I, I think everybody does it to some extent, but being aware of it. So I think part of the thing for me is realizing that there is a compromise mm -hmm. in trying to be um, true to the precepts and trying mm -hmm. to be true to the, the spirit of, of the practice. So I, I don't know, it's just important for me to remember that it's not like do this and everything's going to be easier <laughs> by yeah. any means, or that it's the easiest way to be in the world because because um, it doesn't seem to be. Yeah. But maybe, I don't know, maybe there's something else I'm not thinking about too. I mean, well, isn't it easier in the big picture and harder in the small picture? Right. Well, yeah, it's easier in the big picture and harder in the small <laughs> picture. That's true. But the small picture, that's where we live. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Too often. Yes. So, but what you, 
I know what it's like in academia. I mean, the egos are enormous, and the competition is fierce and vicious, and a lot of it takes place behind people's back. Um, but a lot of the gamesmanship is, you know, when somebody presents uh, some of their work, and that's to be able and stand up and sound like you're being polite while ridiculing them in front of everybody else in the room. And that's part of the game. But, and you'll see a lot of that, uh, because you'll see the people who are good at that get ahead. And, and so you, you'll, you're definitely going to see a lot of that. But if you look carefully, what you're going to see is that the most admired and respected people of all are just the opposite. Somebody will present something and they'll stand up and they'll make them right before they point out the problems and what they've said. And so look for those people and make them, when you find somebody like that, make them your, your model, your, your role model. Pay careful attention to them. Go out of your way to be in their presence when they're functioning professionally, even if it's not directly relevant to your work, just so you have an opportunity to, to study how they do this. Because you can do it too, and it's true of other professions as well. The world, this is a world where, uh, you know, it, it's a world of, of really wrong values. I mean, we really do worship uh, greed, lust, hatred, aggression, uh, all of these things. Maybe not the whole world. Uh, well, maybe our culture. Mm, I don't I You got it in India, you got it in China, you got it in Nigeria. I think you got it all over the place. Even those. Even those places where it hasn't been so strongly established through the kind of media and advertising and things like we that we have, it's coming in and it's being welcomed with open arms. They're being westernized and, and taking yeah. on that value system. They're taking on that value system. There are Eastern cultures that haven't been. I mean, they are changing. Mm -hmm. But but my point is that we are in a culture that glorifies competition as a part of this whole thing. And so this is your challenge. If you're going to be a lay Buddhist and keep these precepts, you're going to have to rise above it. You know, it doesn't mean, uh, it shouldn't mean, I don't want it to mean that you, because the only way that you can see to get ahead is the way these other people are getting ahead, and you say to yourself, well, I can't do that, I'm not willing to do that, therefore, uh, I guess I'll just get ridden roughshod over and accept the lowest spot in the totem pole. That's not what I'm suggesting. I'm saying look way up at the top and see who's actually more successful than those. See who the really great people are and how they treat people and go for that. Even if you don't make it to that point, you're going to be so much better off. I will say one thing in defense of that. The chair of the psychology department, Al Kazniak, has been practicing Zen for 16 years, and he's exactly like that. Yeah. He never, I mean, it's never a matter of ridicule and cutting other people mm -hmm. down for his own gain. He's, yeah, he's completely diplomatic and genuinely, sincerely, you know, yeah. cares about the, the, the knowledge, not the, you know, not the... So part of your practice should be to go out of your way yeah. every day you're on that campus 
to take any opportunity you can to study the way Al Kazniak works. I'm to work with him, so that's good. That's very, no, that's all very yeah. true. So the most important thing he can teach you isn't the academic stuff, it's that. Yeah. That's, mm-hmm. so. I found that financial success, success actually ended up really getting in the way of um, my growth. Um, this year I've gone through a bankruptcy. I've lost three houses, including my home of 12 years. Mm-hmm. And uh, initially it was devastating. Mm-hmm. And then I had the realization that I was not my stuff. Yeah, wonderful. And that was, that was terrific. You know, I lost my stuff and I was still here. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I had really gotten uh, drawn in to that. Yeah. And it, I had taken it on as an identity. Mm-hmm. And it happened so easily. And of course, yeah. everywhere you turn, it's being reinforced. So well, be able exactly. to, yeah. to yeah. be able to step outside of that is wonderful. Although it's too bad it had to happen that way, but it was good. Yeah, indeed. Well, two precepts that we haven't directly addressed, and I'll just briefly say something about, because uh, as usual, I've talked a long time and we still want to meditate. So. Um, one is uh, the precept to refrain from acting out of ill will or taking uh, satisfaction in the misfortune of others. And uh, you see, this, uh, especially the latter part of this, uh, you might see how commonly we do this. Our jealousies, our, our hatreds, our resentments, everything else, we may not act openly on them, but within ourselves, we it served them right. <laughs> right? This is, this is, this does so much damage to your mind that, you know, you, you might as well walk around with a pistol and shoot off one of your toes or fingers every time that uh, you allow yourself to indulge in this because you're doing terrible damage to your mind. You know. So, uh, and I, we could talk a lot more about that, but I, th- I think you probably understand it to a certain degree. The last of these precepts is very important. If you're a dedicated lay practitioner, you're making a commitment that every single day not just that you'll meditate every day, but that you will study the Dharma and learn to understand it in all of its nuances and refuse to accept anything that you don't really understand and refuse to uh, go along with something and, or let it be until you understand either you, you understand really clearly how it is mistaken and useless or how you can apply it yourself and understand its truth and its value. Likewise, reflection, daily reflection on uh, how you're living your life, how you're keeping these precepts, uh, how you're progressing on your spiritual path. Life is very short. You don't know how long it is. If you really recognize the problem enough to take refuge, and if you really believe in the solution well enough to take refuge, then you can't afford to not to do this every day. And what I see is that 
people go through an evolution and they get to the point, uh, they, they will get to the point where everything they do is related to their spiritual path. There is not a moment in their day or an activity that they engage in that is not a part of their spiritual path. And those activities that contribute the least fall away. And so it continues to become more and more refined. And so that's that's where this last precept takes you. You may start out and it may involve 15 minutes of reflection and 45 minutes of meditation and trying to lead at least two pages out of a Dharma book every day. But where it leads, if you really apply it, is that 24 hours a day you're practicing Dharma. You dream Dharma. You are mindful in deep sleep when there's no dream. So, so that's the five precepts of a dedicated lay practitioner. That will give us the lay practitioners who can create a much better dharma than, than what we have inherited from the past. And this final little thing, since I'm going through here, is um, as Day is trying to be in one day a week of keeping all ten of these precepts, but working up to doing it eight days a week. The last part here is, with these ten precepts, virtue becomes the vehicle for a happy existence. To become awakened, you really do have to be happy. And one of the biggest causes of unhappiness is uh, non-virtuous thoughts, speech, and activities. And you need to not only understand that, you need to apply that understanding. So if you keep the precepts, you are going to lead a much happier existence. You become known as a person who uh, does not harm, does not engage in unwholesome kinds of speech, uh, dishonesty, uh, divisive speech, harsh speech, so forth. Somebody who can be trusted, uh, then in many ways, your life becomes better. Through virtue, good fortune is attained. Um, because those who live by the sword die by the sword. And those who are engaged in the struggle to amass uh, material gains uh, attract to them those who are similarly motivated and want to take them away. So setting yourself outside of that arena will uh, bring you great good fortune. Not necessarily that you'll have a lot of money, but you'll have what you need. You'll have everything that you need. And of course, virtue is the vehicle for liberation because it changes the way your mind works. It changes you into the kind of person with the kind of mind that is capable of achieving awakening. <laughs>